Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God in spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, Caleb, for reading the scriptures for us today. Where are you going? Service is not over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Caleb and I are, are Snapchat buddies, so... So I've been, I've been sick the past week, and, uh, and I don't know, this, it, it's not COVID, I, I got tested, it, it, but there's a lingering cold, and so uh, it's not going away. So I'm going to try to get through the, the, the message, but if I cough or sneeze in the middle, I'll just know that it, it's just something I'm getting over. Um, <clears throat> two weeks ago, we looked at this passage. Last week was Thanksgiving Sunday, and so I kind of switched it up and gave a Thanksgiving message. But two weeks ago, we looked at this passage about this woman, this Samaritan woman. And I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, but basically those three points, we saw that in this passage that the gospel, it crosses lines, that it is from a culture, a Jewish culture predominantly, but it's never bound by any culture, right? It it doesn't submit to just one culture. Uh, Secondly, we learned that the gospel also addresses needs, that this woman came to the well because she needed water, you need water to live, and I think Jesus understood this, and so he uses this need to get to a greater need. Uh, and Jesus addresses that for her. Um, and thirdly, we learned two weeks ago that the gospel doesn't just address needs, but it also addresses the heart. It addresses hearts. The, what, what really is the issue for not only us, but also for this woman? This woman, who we are told, probably didn't have the best reputation. She had, it says, five husbands. And she's probably living with someone who was not her husband. Uh, and so I'm not sure what that, what that is all about, but the impression is she didn't have a good reputation, and she knew it. And, and that's why she was coming out to this well in the middle of the day where nobody else comes out and to get this water because, really, she wanted to avoid people. She wanted to avoid people, and so there's a greater need. Something in her heart needs to be addressed, and we learn that that's why Jesus offers her, quote-unquote, living water. Living water. I wanted to remain and finish that passage, this passage, with just an idea or this thought here that, that really I think we could say so much more, but just to kind of think about. Uh, we're given this brief detail here in verse 29. 
verse 28, John says, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. After meeting Jesus Christ, John deliberately, I think, puts in this verse, the woman left her water jar. I don't think this is a minute detail. I don't think the Bible just kind of needs filler to kind of make a story more interesting. I think it's in there for a reason. I think John put it in there for a purpose. The woman, after meeting Jesus, left her water jar. And if we look deeper into this, maybe not from the woman's perspective, I don't know, maybe she forgot her water jar because she was so excited about meeting this guy Jesus and she's going back to town. We're not sure, but I think from John's perspective, I'd like to say he's got a deeper perspective here when he writes that the woman left her water jar at that well. I think her leaving that water jar represented a change that took place in this woman. Because think about it. That water jar for her was life. That pot, not just a little pot, okay? It's probably a a huge pot around this big. Maybe she carried it like this. Maybe she carried it on her head. It's heavy. The well that she went to, Jacob's well, is a very famous well, but most likely far from where she lived. So she has to go a long way to take this huge jar to get that water to fill it in and then to go back, right? But she had to do it every day because she needed water to live. It was life for her. It was life. That job that she had every day was life for her. Okay? But what does she do in verse 28? The woman left her water jar. She leaves it. And then she goes back into the town and she talks to the people and she says, come and see this guy who knew everything that I ever did. She came to the well every day carrying a big jar, a cistern, a big pot, and it's hard work just to get water because she needed to live. She came because of what she thought she needed, but she meets Jesus, and then she gets, I think, something what Jesus thought she really needed. She really needed in order to live. And I think we need to think about this because sometimes we're just like this lady, that we've got this jar that we're needing to fill it up with every day, working so hard every day to fill it up. We pray for a water pot that we think needs to be filled when maybe, sometimes maybe, we need to pray, Lord, give me the strength and faith to leave it for something that water pots and jars can't hold. Let me ask you a question today. What water pot are you trying to fill? What are you doing with your life? What are you, trying, what are you working so hard for? What are you filling your life with today? What is it that, that you are so anxious about, working so hard to fulfill in your lives? What do you think it is that you need to have in order to fulfill life, to be satisfied or to be happy? And are we filling our lives with things only to have it run out? Only to always run empty? For some of it's materialism. Maybe for some of it's money. 
fill it up, fill it up, fill it up. And it's never enough. Maybe for some of us, it's a status or it's a position. Even more basic, maybe it's just food. You just want to keep filling, filling, but you're always going hungry. And not that these things are unimportant, right? They are important. But what does Jesus really want to give this woman when he says, I've got water that you will never go thirsty? What is this? He's not saying that physical water, material need, is unimportant. But what does he want to give you when he tells you, drink of this and you will never run dry? And two weeks ago, we said it. He wants to give you himself. He wants to give this lady himself because he's the living water. He's the well. He's the spring that flows water but never runs dry. And I think that's why John specifically tells us in verse 28, so this woman leaves her water jar there. I think she, at this moment, makes a choice when she leaves her water pot there. She leaves her jar for him. She leaves the work of trying to fill it herself to be filled with him. It was a simple choice that she had to make. What Jesus was offering, what she was doing, do you want to be empty or do you want to be filled? My jar or yours? Do you want to be hungry or do you want to be satisfied? My jar or yours? Do you want to be anxious, desperate, fearful, insecure, hopeless? Or do you want to be peace, security, ease, hope, comfort, courage? My jar or yours? She left her water pot for him. The woman, I think, made a choice. She left her water pot there in order to have something else. And I think for her, it was a no-brainer. She didn't need any convincing. To be filled for a moment, only to hunger and thirst later, or to endure a moment and then be filled and satisfied forever. It's a no-brainer for her. And so I think she gladly makes her choice to leave her water part there and all that it represented because she met this person, Jesus. Here, I think, is the essence, I think is the core of practical Christian living. Many people, when they think of Christianity and what it means to live like a Christian, to look like a Christian, tend to think of religion or Christianity as a religion of morality. If you want to be a good Christian, well, this is what good Christians do. This is what you should be doing. And this is what you shouldn't be doing. That's how we oftentimes think about our lives when we think about being a good Christian. And that's why some of us, we have questions like this. Is it okay for Christians to do this? Is it okay for Christians to do that? Is it okay that Christians, you know, shouldn't be doing this? And let's be honest. Many of us who are Christians who ask those questions, we do so because we're trying to find that line, uh, to get close to that line as close as possible without crossing over and still be called a Christian. Is it okay to do this? Why? Because let's be honest. 
many of us still think of Christianity in terms of morality. And because of this, we kind of find it restrictive. Being Christian for you is not fun because you think of do's and don'ts. While everybody else around you looks like they're having fun, we can't. We aren't. Why? Because we're Christians, and Christians don't do this, and Christians only do that, and so on and so forth. Now, if this is you, okay, if this is you, and you think of Christianity in terms of a morality, a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, there's a danger here. There's a twofold danger, okay? On the one hand, you probably think you are doing all the rules. You could think you are following all the right rules. And therefore, you think you're a good Christian. And the danger of that thinking is that you become self-righteous. Hey, I go to church. Hey, I serve. Hey, I give. Those people don't do anything. Look at them, but look at me. You look down on others who break those rules. And if that's you, you really might not be a Christian You're just a moralist, and Christianity is not moralism. On the other hand, the other danger is this. If you only see the Christian life as a moralistic perspective, you might be turned off. You might tune out. Do this, do this, don't do this. That's all it is. That's all it is. And you tune out. Why? Because either you feel like you will never reach that goal because you never do good enough, or... You look at other Christians who are self-righteous and they're hypocrites, people who think they do it all and know it all, and it turns you off. Two dangers. Two dangers. But the point here is whether you think you're a Christian because you do good or whether you don't like Christians because they think they're so good, both ways are moralistic. And both ways will miss out on the grace, the mercy, the joy, the person who says, you drink from me, you will never go thirsty. Both ways will miss out on what it really means to be a Christian. Yes, there are morals in the Bible. Yes, there are commands. There are things that are right and wrong in Christianity. But that is not the essence of the religion, of the faith. After all, look at our passage today. Here's this woman. She's had five husbands and living with someone who is not. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with her. We're not told what her background is. But it's clear she's broken some rules, even in her own context. You know, did you know that even in Jewish culture, Three marriages was a max. She's had five. Living with someone who wasn't. Probably working on her sixth. And that's why she comes out to this well at an odd time of day to avoid people. People who saw her as a real problem. People who saw her as the real sinner. Shameful. Guilty. And maybe she probably recognized a little bit of that herself. But what does Jesus do in our passage? Here's Jesus. He's the Son of God. If you don't believe that, he's at least a religious man, a rabbi. If you don't want to believe that, he's at least a Jewish man in good standing. Whatever the situation is, he doesn't avoid her. He goes to her. He talks to her. He doesn't condemn her or judge her. He doesn't look down on her. He offers her a drink. 
He wants to engage with her. He wants to give her something that no other god, no other rabbi, and no other religious man would be able to give to her. You see, Jesus is righteous, but he's not self-righteous. He's not a moralist. He's not a list of do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. He, he's a person seeking to give another person what he thinks needs the most. He invites her for a drink. He invites her to himself. That's not moralism. That's grace. That's mercy. That's unconditional love. Let's think about this for a minute, okay? What exactly is this woman's biggest sin? What did she do that was so wrong that she had to avoid all these people in her town and come out and draw water, hottest time of the day, what, what, what was her issue? What was the biggest sin? Was it adultery? Was it the multiple of unwarranted divorces? What was it? And let's make this a little more personal today. Let me ask you a question. What is your biggest sin? What is it that you would want no one to know about? that you would work so hard and do everything you can to hide it or to cover it up. That you wouldn't want flashed on a video screen for everyone to see, what's your biggest sin? What is your biggest problem? What is the issue? I think this passage leads us into a deeper understanding of what sin is. You see, because there's a passage in Jeremiah that many scholars would say serves as a background to our passage today. Jeremiah was a prophet of the Old Testament. You can read about his 40-year ministry in the book of Kings and Jeremiah and so forth. And basically, he spent his whole life trying to tell Israel, God's people, how upset God was. How in spite of all that he had done for them, that his own people would abandon him for false gods from other nations around them. They did that things that not even the pagan nations did, whose gods didn't even exist. They had did, they had, what they had done was they had abandoned the God that they loved or said they loved for something else. So God expresses through Jeremiah what he thought was the real issue. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, this is what he says. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns, jars for themselves, broken jars that can hold no water. Did you hear that? Do you see the connection here with our passage today? God was upset with Israel. Jeremiah, go tell them, go tell them this is the issue. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then they've hewed out jars for themselves, broken jars that really can't hold much water. What is the biggest sin? What is the real issue here? And it's this. Sin 
is when the creatures of God, made in his own image, forsake him the source of life that quenches their deepest thirst and then try to quench those thirsts without him. What Jeremiah was saying, what God was so upset about with Israel was the fact that his people were busy. They were so busy trying to find life anywhere and everywhere else but him. What is sin? Is it breaking a rule? What is the sin for Israel? Was it worshiping false gods? What is the sin for this woman at the well? Was it adultery or illegitimate divorce? Infidelity? What is your sin? Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it envy? Is it jealousy? Is it pride? Selfishness? What, according to God, is the sin underneath all sins that all of us at our hearts struggle with? And the core of every struggle of temptation and sin, whether it's Israel's, whether it was this woman's, or whether it was ours, is this. We are tempted to make a choice to abandon what ought to be our greatest source of joy in life, thinking that we'll find more happiness and more life elsewhere. Whether it's sex or money or drugs or, or, or people and a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse, our children, whether it's our jobs, our vocations, our vacations, our material wealth, the temptation is to forsake God in order that we might fill our own water pots. That's the bottom of every sin you do. In every sin we commit, we make a choice, any sin you think about, we make a choice to abandon what God says will ultimately enrich us and flourish us in life, and then we choose something or someone else that might temporarily satisfy, but will ultimately impoverish us and leave us still hungry and thirsty. You see that? That's the issue. In Jeremiah, Israel breaks the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But what we need to understand is this. God wasn't just upset because you broke a rule. He was personally offended. God is offended. You choose that over me? You believe I exist? You believe I'm the creator of the world? You believe I, I provide all things, the giver of life? You believe I'm in eternity and you would choose that over me? How dare you? Sin isn't just a moral issue. Sin is a relational issue. When we sin, God isn't just saying, hey, you did this, you broke a rule. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you did this and you did it to me. You left me, the spring of living waters, for broken cisterns and water pots that hold no water. You did what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1. You exchanged the glory of an immortal God for idols. 
And rather than living for the creator, you live for created things. That's the judgment. And that's why Jeremiah preached judgment. God was offended. But what do we see here in our passage today? What do we see in our passage today? In Jeremiah, God says he's the fountain of living water. And the people of God abandoned that fountain for broken cisterns. So what does God do? In the Gospel of John today, here's Jesus on a mission who goes out of his way, the long way to Samaria. Why? Just to meet this one poor woman at a well. And then what does he do? Offers her living water. He's the living water. In Jeremiah, the people abandon the fountain. In John, God sends the fountain to come after us and bring us his living water. He sends his son Jesus, who says to this woman and to us, drink of this water and never be thirsty. And so now we're at a crossroads. He gives this woman, and he gives all of us today, a choice. Here's the choice. Which fountain will you go to? Which spring do you really think will satisfy you? This is the struggle of every temptation in every human heart. Which well has the deepest, longest, lasting hope, joy, and satisfaction in it? That's the choice. And Jesus is saying in our passage, in fact, he's saying throughout the whole book of the Gospel of John, over and over again, I am And in verse 28, we are told the woman left her water jar there. She made her choice. She made her choice. She makes a choice to abandon her own attempts to fill her pot with things that ultimately leave her empty and thirsty in order that she might drink from the fountain of life and not just be satisfied for a moment, but to never be thirsty again. She trusted in that, I think, to be filled and never run out or go empty. Which well? Whose water? Let me leave you with two applications that I see in this woman after meeting Jesus Christ. Two changes I see in this person, okay? First, fear of people. Verse 28, what does she do? She leaves a water jar, water jar there, what does she do? She goes back to the town and starts talking to those people. Right? Something's changed. I, those are the people that she probably didn't want to see. Those are the people that are probably judging her. Those are the people that are probably looking down on her. That's why she came out to that well. She, she didn't want to see those people. She probably didn't even like those people. Then what happened? Why is she now going back to them? Talking to them. Hey, come and see. Fear of people. 
is gone after meeting Jesus. What does that mean, fear of man? When we say fear of men or fear of people, it's not that you're scared of people. But if you have fear of people, it means this. It means that you care what people think more than you probably should. Maybe not every people, but maybe certain people. You just care a little too much. It's not that you shouldn't care at all what people think. It's just that the weight of what they might think the weight of it, the, the approval, the, the acceptance, their judgments, the weight of that is so heavy on you, it actually controls you. It affects you. It defines you, positively or negatively. Positively, if you're a fear of people, you're a people pleaser. That's what it means. You can't say no to people. Why? Because you have a need to be liked, to be accepted, at least not to be hated. You have a fear of rejection. So just say yes. And that controls your life. Why? Because you care too much about what other people think. But what about this woman in our passage? You would think it's the opposite. She doesn't want to see anybody. She doesn't want to please anybody. She came out to draw water from a well, worst time of day where nobody would be around. She wanted to avoid everybody. Maybe not even like them. She did that every day. But it's not because she didn't care what they thought. It's also because she cared too much what they thought. Too much. Just as much as it does people pleasers. It was just different. I want to avoid them. I don't want to see them. It was negative. But in verse 28, what does she do? Somehow there's boldness. Somehow there's courage. She goes back to town. She engages with those people. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. How? How does she do this? Here's a question. If you're, so, if you're struggling with this today, let me ask you a question, a simple one. Whose opinion matters most to you, people or God? Who, whose acceptance really matters, people or God? Whose approval? Who, whose love? Whose opinion? The creator of the universe, the holy judge of the world, the fountain of living water, his opinion or created people's opinion. If Jesus doesn't judge you, if he knows all that you ever did and still doesn't condemn you, but he accepts you, he forgives you, he loves you, he loves you so much, he would even die for you. And if you believe in them, what are the opinions and thoughts of people compared to that? They're just people. No more fear. The second change I see after meeting Jesus is this, blessing. Okay, and we'll end with this. Blessing. She goes back to town to do what? Does she go back to town to get in their face and say, hey, you know what, I met this Jesus Christ. He loves me more than you, and so you guys can go to hell. Who do you think you are, you hypocrites? You're no better than me. Who are you to judge me? Is that how she did it? We're not told here of any bitterness. There's no sense of anger. There's no retribution. There's no revenge. There's not even a cold shoulder. After meeting Jesus, I think she felt blessed. She could have walked back into town holding in her heart this new joy that she found. She could have kept it all secret, all to herself, this blessing of meeting this person, Jesus Christ, that she just met. 
She could have just walked by people and just smile at them and keep it all to herself. But what does she do? She doesn't. She shares it. She shares it. Come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? And they listened. They went out of town and they were going to him. I think she said this with some, some sense of excitement, maybe a little joy. I think she felt she was blessed. All fear is gone. Goes back into town to do what? To share the blessing. She was blessed to bless. She was blessed to bless. Come and see this guy. He's the one. And verse 30, they listened and they, they went to see what it was all about. She was blessed to bless. She leaves her water pot at the well. She abandons the bringing of that water. And she brings people. Here's the point. Her faith, as weak as it might have been, her experience, it's very personal. Very personal. But she doesn't keep it private. Her faith is personal, but it's not private. She goes public, and she's not afraid of the rejection. She shares the blessing because I think she believes she's received the blessing. And this is all to say, especially at this time of year, before you go shopping crazy, thinking about what you would like to get for Christmas this year, can you remember can you take a moment to remember, if you've met Jesus, can you remember how much you've been blessed in him? You've been blessed to bless, not just to receive, but to be a blessing to others. Can we think of ways, as we think about Jesus, the fountain of living water now in us, can we think, despite the ups and downs of our lives, I've been blessed. How can I be a blessing to others today? You've been blessed to bless. Be a blessing to others. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for reminding us again I don't know who we are, but Lord, who you are. Why we ought to count it worthy to be able to worship you because you are worthy. Many times our lives are filled with routines. We don't think twice about what we do. But Lord, that is what it means. That is what it ought to mean for us. You are worthy. Anything less cannot compare. So, Lord, we pray, once again, lift our eyes away from the things that we want right now here in this world. Help us to look to you. Remind us of what we've been given already in you. Help us to see how good you really are. Help us to know you're not a moralist. You're not just religious, but you're a person who cares to give us the best. And the best is you. And if it's you, then it's what we have, and nothing compares. Practically, Lord, put this in practice. It's very difficult. 
We are such visual people, such physical people, Lord. We, we, we only see what's in front of our eyes. We lost at what we see. Give us faith. Help us to see what you see. Bless us so that we might be a blessing to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.